So this morning, if you're here for the first time, we are working through the book of two Thessalonians. It's a letter to the church of Thessalonica. It's Paul's second letter. And where we are in, in this book is just in the first chapter still, and we are reaching the end of the first chapter, and we're going to focus this morning on just two verses, chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. And it's Paul's prayer for the church. In connection to that prayer, I want to open our Bibles to a prayer uh, from the Old Testament, from Psalm 20. And this prayer is really a prayer asking God to answer our prayers. It's a prayer pleading with God to answer our prayers. It's a beautiful prayer found on, uh, in the Old Testament, Psalm 20. Let me read that with you this morning. There we find, May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. That verse is important in connection to what we're going to preach about. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some, some, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. That's Psalm 20. We're going to open our Bibles now to um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. And I've called this message God's Fitness Regime for our lives. And just before we open the Bible, I'm going to give you a bit of a context to that title, God's Fitness Regime for Our Lives. I wonder if you children know what a fitness regime is. I didn't either, so I looked it up. Uh, maybe another word for fitness regime would be fitness training. Maybe a picture like this may help you. That person's in some serious fitness training. And it's a regime. It's a practice that you do regularly um, in order to, to become more fit, which is, you know, has some good positive elements to it. As I was preparing the sermon, and maybe this is what struck me as I was writing the sermon, I was getting these, this, these feeds, these through virtual feeds, um, about a company, a brand name called Peloton. I don't know if any of you have heard of this brand name called Peloton. Uh, Peloton... If, as a word, is, the, is a pack of bikers. I'm not a biker, but that pack is called the Peloton. Well, they've taken that, they've hijacked that name, and they've made it a brand. And it's a fitness brand. I don't know if you know that. And their kind of their signature fitness thing is the Peloton bike. But they also moved into treadmill. They were doing so well, they just diversified their portfolio and made tons of money. The owner of Peloton, I'm just going to share this very briefly, but the owner of Peloton, John Foley, or Foley, was brilliant. Because what he did, he not only created a fitness product, he joined that with a spiritual 
experience. He spiritualized the whole identity, the whole community around Peloton. So what they've done now is they've created this, what they call one Peloton. One Peloton is like a church community in some ways for some people. And in this community of adherence to this product and to what they're doing, physical training, they've created a liturgy. The liturgy is their weekly regime, their weekly activity. But not only have they created a weekly regime, fitness regime for you, they've also added that to that uh, an instructor, a motivator who empowers you to, to, to keep on going, to, to not get tired. I just read a few of their, you know, their signature ways of, of encouraging you. Let me check my watch. What time is it? It's boss time and you're a boss. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm almost buying that bike now. Here's the next one. Whatever you are bringing to, to this class today, it's enough. You are right now, what you are, who you are right now, sorry, is enough. Don't compare yourself to others. Just be who you are. You do you. Amen. Or not. Why share all this? Because you shouldn't work out? No. Because you shouldn't buy a Peloton bike? No. Because the Apostle Paul says, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, physical training is of some value. It protects your temple. Eat well, exercise daily. That's good for you. But when your fitness and your passion to be fit crosses over and becomes a religion, you're worshiping. The Bible, not the Bible, the body. You see, our ultimate purpose, loved ones, on this earth is to prepare to meet our Lord, the one who has saved us. That's our ultimate purpose. Not to prepare for the attention of others on the beaches of southern Ontario. It's not how toned our abs are or how good we look in tights. Because we learn in Ecclesiastes that that ultimately, if that's your passion for life, it's hevel. And hevel means vapor. It's like a mist that just blows away. It has no eternal value. No, there's another fitness regime that has eternal value. Paul captures this again in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. Godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both this life and the life to come. What Paul presents to us and what we have in our text here is a gospel of living for life for Christ. What Peloton has done and other fitness groups have done the same thing. They've created a self-help gospel and a self-help gospel does not ultimately help you. So let us open our Bibles with that in mind to two Thessalonians 1, chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. Just two verses we're going to look at this morning. There we read, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worship, sorry, may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. 
We pray this so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord for a blessing over this word as it's proclaimed to us this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's profound. It's beautiful. It's life-changing. It's worthy of all your glory. And yet, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will take this word, even the word that's proclaimed this morning, and lay it on our hearts. Do an awesome work here today by your Holy Spirit. Encourage us, convict us, motivate us for good, for the sake of your kingdom and the coming Savior that we will meet one day. In his name do we pray. Amen. So I've called this sermon um, God's Fitness Regime for Our Lives, and there's three things that I'm going to look at, which are goals, you could say, for this fitness regime. The first one is our worthiness, how we live out our sense of worth um, as ones who have been called, um, our walk with Christ. That's our second goal within the fitness regime, and, and the third one is our witness. Last week, I shared that Paul was giving a word of encouragement now to the church in Thessalonica. And in this word of encouragement, he, he kind of tackled three different things just to encourage the church. He, he, he tackled the fact that, you know, our faith grows under pressure. And he was watching the pressure on this church and their faith was just constantly growing and becoming stronger. And he was sharing the beauty of that reality with all the other churches. Your faith was growing under pressure. Be encouraged. He then goes on to say, you know, you're, you're suffering. You're suffering for Christ. Your suffering in the faith is not in vain. When we take on the name of Jesus and live out, you know, for his glory, and we face troubles and we face persecution, that's not in vain. And finally, he said, you know, the coming of Christ, when he comes, he's going to come in glory, not shame. Don't, you, won't, you won't be embarrassed. When Jesus comes back, I assure you, brothers and sisters, you won't be embarrassed. You're going to say, that's my Savior, that's my Lord, and it will be awesome. Paul says, be encouraged by this reality, that all of this is true. But then he wants to finish off with, with the congregation just with a short little prayer about that. And so he begins, he says, "May I?" He says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you. With all this in mind, that your faith is being tested, that Jesus is coming in glory, and that your suffering is not in vain. With that in mind, we're praying for you. What are we praying? We're praying that, um, that you'll be found worthy, made worthy, counted worthy upon Christ's return. Paul says, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. A more dynamic translation of this might be, I pray that our God, or we pray that our God will make you fit for what he has called you to be, that you will be fit for what God has called you to be. And that's where I got this idea of a fitness regime, that God wants us to be fit for the call on our life. Well, what is that call? 
If you have to be fit for God's call on your life, you better understand what the call is. If you have to be fit for a calling, you better understand the calling. So what is the calling? And we're just going to drill down a little bit into this idea of calling so that you are very clear what your calling is in this life. We do not want any of you leaving wondering, what is my calling in my life? Throughout the history of the church, especially since, of course, Christ rose and the Holy Spirit was poured out, the church has defined chiefly two callings when it comes to um, the Christian life. And, And the first calling is what we call a universal call, or otherwise called the call of the gospel. The universal call in Scripture, or the call of the gospel, is that you repent and believe. That universal call is meant to go everywhere, to all places. That's why part of our mission objectives as a local church is to spread the gospel locally and abroad because it's a universal call. One of our confessions called the Canons of Door, we have three kind of confessional standards that we hold on to as a Reformed community. One of the confessional standards is called the Canons of Door. In chapter 2, um, article 5, It says these words about this calling. It says the promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise ought to be announced and proclaimed universally and without discrimination to all peoples, to all men and women to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel together, here it comes, with the command to repent and believe. That's the universal call of the gospel. Now, if you answer that call by faith, you have responded to this universal call, and it's going to have an effect in your life. You have the universal call of the gospel. That's one of the calls that we talk about in in theology. The other one is called an effectual call. The effect of the universal call taking root in your life is an effectual call. And so whether you're online today or in front of me, if you have not responded to the universal call of the gospel, if you have not turned to Jesus by faith, I implore you on Christ's behalf to do that. To do that today. In fact, to do it right now. Because on this side of eternity is the only opportunity to hear that universal call. Once you die, there will be no opportunity to hear the universal call of the gospel to repent and believe it's too late but as I said if that call is taking effect in your life that's the call now that Paul is focusing on the universal call of the gospel has come to the church of Thessalonica has come to the people of Thessalonica and many responded by faith and it took effect in their life and it changed them You see, when people hear the call or the universal call to repent and believe and that call takes effect in your life, 
that means what we learn in Scripture, that you are born again. And this is what, Paul, uh, this is what Jesus says in John 3, verse 3. He says, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can enter or see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's not good enough just to hear the universal call of the gospel. I heard it, Jesus. I know someone came and preached to me. My friend, my neighbor next door told me that I needed to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. I heard that call, and Jesus said, but did you listen? Did you hear, heed it? Were you born again to the reality that now, now that you've received this call, you are a new person? But this is where Christ has to become involved by the Holy Spirit because for that, that call to take effect in your heart, for you to respond to the universal call of the gospel, God's Spirit has to do an awesome work in your life. That's what we confess. Because how can you hear a call when you are dead in your sins? Your ears are plugged. They're blocked. They don't, they're not listening unless the Spirit begins to open your ears, warm your heart to, to the gospel. This is what we read in Ephesians 2 verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It's grace. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace that takes that universal call of the gospel and makes it plant, plants it in our hearts and makes our hearts warm and responding to it by faith and say, yes, Jesus, I love you and I hate sin. That's grace. Paul's saying the calling on your life as a result of Christ becoming alive in you of you becoming born again, of you being adopted as a child of God, a follower of Jesus, a servant of the Lord Most High, that calling on your life means that you are a Christian, a Christ follower. And as such, God wants us to be worthy of that title, of that calling. Just as if I was a doctor, and I'm a doctor of medicine, if I have a degree in medicine and I, have, I become an MD, I, I, I sign off on a medical ethic. It's called a Hippocratic Oath. So that I fulfill the duties of my calling and I live up to the title given to me as doctor. First responders have to do this. Teachers have to do this. We all have to do this. We have a title to live up to because that's what defines us now. And, and Paul's saying you are now defined as a Christ follower. You are find, defined as a Christian. That's your calling to walk with Christ until the day of his return. Now live like a Christian. Be found worthy by the power of the Spirit in you to live out that calling in your life. Here's the second, because now, Paul, what he does, is says, okay, in part of God's fitness regime, you are to live worthy of that calling, but let me put some legs to that. What does that look like in your life? It's our walk. It's our walk of faith that we begin to live out that calling in our life. Paul begins, and that by his power, in verse 11, he may bring to fruition every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. 
He wants, by his power, to bring to fruition every desire for goodness and every deed prompted by faith. That's what it means now to kind of live out that calling that's on your life as a Christian. We're talking about our walk with Christ here and our good desires and good deeds. Paul is not talking about every single desire that we have because I'm afraid to say that many of our desires aren't altogether good. We have a lot of desires. We have desires for more material wealth, a nicer house, a larger flat screen TV, a larger boat, or more exotic vacations. We have these desires that are very materialistic. We have desires for sexual impurity. There's lots of desires that are not good. He's talking about desires that, has, that have Christ at the center of them. Those are good. And for the believers in our midst this morning, I hope you can attest to this fact, that when you became a Christian, and when you professed your faith, when you realized that you were a blood-bought sinner, I hope and I pray that you realize that your desires changed. I hope. See, when you become a follower of Christ, what excites you, what you pray for more earnestly, what you long to see happen in your life and in the lives of others does not just simply exist in the atmosphere of self. No, when you become a Christ follower, you break through by his power the atmosphere of self and you enter into other people's atmosphere and you enter into this global reality that Christ is your Lord and your King. So your affections for Christ grow and your love for others grow, breaking free from the atmosphere of self. Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united to Christ, he says to the Philippian church, then he says, value others above yourself. He says in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, It's no longer I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. My desires have changed. Hallelujah. When I was in my late teens, maybe I've shared some of this before, I did not realize how self-centered I was. How self-focused I was. How I was breathing in the toxic air of pure, selfish ambition. That was me. And it wasn't until years later, after my heart was changed by the power of God's Spirit, that others gently played back the video. The audio, maybe, is better. I'm old. They didn't have videos back then. And they would say things like, remember the time when all you talked about was you <laughs> and what you wanted it to do? I was staying and living in the atmosphere of Ian. And it was a prison I didn't realize I was in. 
Most people don't realize that they live in this prison of selfishness and in the toxic of selfish ambition. Oh, I, I assure you, I've been a follower of Jesus for many years, that the battle's still fierce. But when God opens our hearts and opens our minds, our love for Christ and our love for others continues to grow. And I wonder this morning if you've experienced that. Because if you haven't experienced that, then I'm going to ask you, have you really understood what it means to be a follower of Christ? Are you united to Christ? Because if you are, your desires will change. Paul's asking God to make these good desires and good deeds prompted by faith, he's asking God to cause them to bear fruit. Someone who has influenced me greatly in my 20s was Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if you know Jonathan Edwards. He's, he's long past. When, I'm talking about the theologian. There's lots of Jonathan. I Googled his name. There's lots of Jonathan Edwards out there. So let's talk about the Jonathan Edwards who was part of the Great Awakening in the 1700s in New England. That Jonathan Edwards. I did a few papers on Jonathan Ed Edwards because he, he, he just he inspired me. He was a man deeply convicted by the gospel. His passion was simple. His passion was to know Christ and cultivate Christian character in his life, in every part of his life. And he was a prolific preacher and a prolific writer. He wrote 70 resolutions for Christian living. And here are just a few of those resolutions. I'm just going to pick one or two. 14, resolve never to do anything out of revenge. Resolve never to suffer the least Emotions of anger about being irrational beings. Resolve never to speak evil of anyone except if it's necessary for some real good. Resolved I will live in such a way as I will wish I had done when I, came, when I come to die. He wrote 70 of these. Resolutions. Good desires. That's what good desires are. They're Resolutions. What struck me the most when I was in my late 20s doing my Masters of Divinity is that Jonathan Edwards wrote this when he was 19 years old. And I want to challenge all of you, if you have time this week, to just call up Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions. You'll find it online. I had this great intention of, of reading. He would read them once a week, <laughs> the 70 resolutions. Throughout his life, when he, after 19, he just, phew. I had great intentions of reading them, and, 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 and I didn't that often. I just sometimes I fall back to it. Someone said the result was that he became a man of humble godliness who was to become the significant spark that God used to ignite one of the greatest revivals known to history. He set out to, to make Christ his goal, his desire, he was resolved to pursue Christ and to see a Christian character take control of every fiber in his body. That passion belongs to us. And here's the, here's the beauty of these good desires, these resolutions for a life worthy of the calling that Christ has given us. Here's, here's, here's the beauty of this, that the power source 
to live out that life with those desires that are good and to live out those deeds that are prompted by faith, the power source for all of that is God. That's what he says. He says, may God, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that God may make you worthy of the calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition every desire for goodness and every deed prompted by faith. It's all about his power. Now I'm just going to apply this to you just briefly. I've got three examples. I have to tell you that John, uh, another John, John Piper, uh, helped me a little bit with understanding this. He gives us, he provided three examples and I think these examples are good. Connecting God's power to God's promises in his word for, so that you can live out the good desires for his glory. Here's three examples. Example number one. He says, if you have set your heart on being sacrificial this year, more generous for the cause of Christ's kingdom, more willing to give to Christ's church, the power of God to fulfill this good desire, and it is a good desire, happens when you trust in his promises. Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. The good desire met by the power of God through his word promised to you. Here's another one. If you have set your heart this year on renouncing porn or any sexual impurity, the power of God to fulfill this resolve will come to you as you trust in his promises for purity to the glory of Christ. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's a promise. Matthew 5, 29, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Yes, a lot better. Ten million times better. This power is realized in trusting his promises. Here's one more. If you have set your heart to speak out for Christ when the opportunity comes, when you set your heart to be more bold with your witness for Jesus in this year, and I hope you have, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, just a, just a resolve to, to be more bold with your faith. If you have set your heart on that resolve, the power of God to fulfill this resolve will come to you as you trust in his promises. Here's a, an extreme example, Matthew 10, verse 19. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to, what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. God is with you. The Holy Spirit will empower you. You're like, I don't know how to answer this. He will be there. Loved ones, you can live in a deep and unwavering conviction that as you set your heart on good desires that bring God glory, His Word and His Spirit will empower you to see these good desires come to fruition. This is part of God's regime, fitness regime for your life. He's empowering you to keep going. And that's my prayer for you this morning as well. Here, let me just close with this, our witness. Verse 12, we pray this so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In God's fitness regime for your life, he wants Christ glorified, full stop. 
and God's fitness regime for your life as he prepares you for eternity. He wants Jesus to be glorified in each of your lives. How? By your actions, by your words, that is by your witness. So that when people see you, they want to bring more glory to Christ because of you. Not less. By your actions and by your duties and by your commitment to Christ, people are saying, I I want something of what you have. You don't want them blaspheming the name of Christ because of your sinful practices. That's not glorifying Christ. When people see our lives, hear us talk, see our actions, does that bring glory to Christ? I I hope it does in my life. And I hope it does in yours. Paul says that we pray that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. There's this inseparable relationship that when, when we are glorifying Christ through our actions, we are receiving the glory of Christ in us that we get to experience more of him as he makes his home in us. You see, God's fitness regime for our lives is to be made worthy of our calling, to walk with good desires or resolve according to his power, and to be witnesses of his glory even as he glorifies himself in us. And now the question is, and we're closed with this question, what motivates this practice? What motivates you to start tomorrow morning or this afternoon trying to live out those those good desires and those deeds prompted by faith? What motivates you to be a better witness for Jesus? What motivates you to, to to be made worthy for the calling that's on your life that you are a follower of Jesus? What motivates you? You see, let's get back to Peloton just, you know, because it was fun. When Peloton... When it comes to Peloton, it really isn't the instructor, actually, loved ones, that motivates the participants to meet the demands of their fitness regime. They're helping to motivate. But the motivation of people wanting to be extremely fit or wanting to follow their regime actually often goes a bit deeper. A bit more primal, you could say. Often it's guilt feelings or it's fear or it's envy or it's a desire for attention that motivate our our arduous workouts. Not always. But I'll tell you this, that if the instructor, the instructor's on Peloton. Now, for you to get a Peloton bike, you actually have to get the instructor. He comes on this big screen in front of you. Like, it's all part of the program. I don't have one, but I think that's how it works. But if the Peloton instructor were to say, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, so exercise in such a way as to bring glorify, to glorify God in your body, you can do this in his power. If they were to say things like that to motivate, that would be awesome. <laughs> but they're feeding a self-help gospel, I said. And ultimately, self-help gospels don't help God's people. They bring you into despair often because you cannot meet the demands of the program. Paul is saying, Paul is not praying for his church. Paul is not praying for his church for a self-help gospel. God's praying that, and Paul's praying that God's fitness regime is not founded or accomplished on our power or self-will. 
It can't be motivated by guilt. It can't be motivated by competition. It can't be motivated by fear. That's not what's going to empower you to get up tomorrow morning and to live out a more godly life for Jesus. Those things won't help. No, God's fitness regime for our lives is founded upon grace and fueled by grace. Hallelujah. And what motivates us, Paul ends, is according, Paul ends like this, according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this fitness regime, this calling to be made worthy of the call, to live out your good desires, your resolutions to grow in Christian character, all of that is by grace. That grace is made visible here this morning. It's the grace of our God that sent his son to rescue wretched people like you and me who live in the intoxication of self and breaks us free from that atmosphere, who cleans up our evil desires who, who, who protects us from the devil's snares, who removes the eternal grip of death that holds us captive because of sin. He, he has done so much for us. It's the grace of God that has set us free and have re, have renew, has renewed our minds and has given us an eternal hope that we're not here just for self, but we're here for Christ and we are going to live with him forever. It's the grace of our God that fuels our passion to keep serving and to keep growing in Christ so that he receives more glory because you love him. It's all grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And may that grace, that grace abound in each of your lives this morning. And may you be encouraged even as we celebrate this that it truly happened for your sake so that you'll be made ready for his return. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, grace upon grace upon grace. Lord, if it's a self-help gospel, we're going we're gonna to get really discouraged along the way. But we know that it's grace, and if we have fallen, you will pick us back up that our sins are truly forgiven us, that you will not leave us in the, in the pit of despair, that you'll give us eternal encouragement, that you'll keep fueling the fire of our, of our desires to grow closer to you. You'll keep blessing us. Oh, God, help us. Help us to live by grace and help us to remember how much you do love us and what you've done to call us and to make us worthy of the call. So that the day that we meet our Savior, we will not be ashamed, but that we'll glory in Him and He in us. In Jesus' name, amen.